Tim Jackson is the owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, one of the most preeminent independent watch dealers in all of Southern California. We chat about what it's like to grow up in England as well as migrate to a sleepy little beach town, selling watches by brands that may only produce 10 watches per year. We talk about the retail space, its implications, and the watch industry as a whole. Why are some of these watches so expensive? Well, we talk about that. If you're a fan of shopping from independent stores, and especially if you're a fan of independent watches, you definitely don't want to miss this. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Wes. First off, tell me a little bit about where we're sitting right now. Well, this is uh, Passion Fine Jewelry. This is our store, a brick and mortar store. And it's uh, set up as a place where you can come and learn, look at cool jewelry and watches. Um, And it's not your typical jewelry store. We didn't want that. Uh, that feeling of you're doing battle over a showcase, if you will. So right. we, we, you come in, sit down, have a coffee, have a glass of wine, and uh, we get to know you, you get to know us, because that's the basis of our businesses, relationships. Right. It's really cool, too. It's set up in, in such a way, almost quite like a miniature living rooms. Uh, yeah. There's like three sofas, a few chairs, keep it comfortable, nice, soft, plush. <laughs> yeah, well, the whole idea is... You, when when somebody doesn't know you, you got to gain their trust, and that comes from people being comfortable. Right, and where most people are most comfortable in their living room. Um, Tell us a little bit about your background. Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? What was that like? Uh, born in England. Um, grew up uh, in the seventies in the UK, uh, which is kind of crazy. Um, and I didn't really have a clue what I wanted to do. Um, but I knew I liked watches from an early age. My first watch was a Timex uh, that I got probably when I was 10, 12 years old, a little manual wine Timex with a plastic turning bezel. Had that for a few years. Um, no idea where it went. Um, and so the, the the seed was sown somewhere along the line that I like watches. Um, and didn't do terribly well at school academically, uh, sort of lost the plot at about 13 or 14. Right. Became a quite a good uh, kayaker. Um, I can hand roll a kayak, um, but didn't do very well academically. So I left school, couldn't go to university, um, went sailing uh, for about a year. Came back to UK in uh, 86 and realized I needed to get a job. And that's how I got in the jewelry business. I uh, fortunately found a uh, was asked to come and work for a family friend um, at a fantastic jewelry firm up in the northwest of England in Chester. Uh, and I had no idea. I, I mean, I'd, uh, I knew the family, great family. So, you know, they said, well, if you've got a suit, you'll clean up, come and work for us. And that's how I got started. Nice. Did, so did you grow up in the northern part of England? Yeah. Or you, okay. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Just, just outside Liverpool. Um. And that was it, yeah. Uh, they carried um, Rolex, um, Omega, and Maurice Lacroix, if I remember rightly. Um, and so I big stu- brands. Yeah, yeah. And then they, they, they but they were fi- fundamentally a jewelry shop, not a watch shop. Got it. Um, and they made their manufacturing jewelers. They made their own jewelry. 
Now, do you have your certification for stones? Was it GIA certified? Uh, yeah, I'm a graduate gemologist. Uh, that's the reason I'm here, sitting here today. Um, I, in uh, 88, oh, actually in the winter of 87, I decided that I needed to become a gemologist if, I was, if this was going to be my career path. Um, and so I'd heard about GIA. Now, you can become a gemologist in the UK, but that is always... Well, back then, anyway, it was done home study. And based on my previous um, lack of academic motivation, I thought trying to stay at home on a Friday night studying when my mates were in the pub would not be good. So, Right. It's probably um, pretty difficult to get you up and going. Yeah. Just, you know, I was, what was I, 19, um, 20. No, I was 20. Would have been difficult. So um, I convinced my parents that, GIA was the place to go and the choice of New York or Santa Monica, uh, that was an easy one for me. So we're sitting here in Solana Beach, mm -hmm. which is just north of San Diego, arguably a sleepy little beach town. Um, how did you get from England to Solana Beach of all places? I'm not sure we have enough time for that. <laughs> That's a long story. Um, the Cliffs Notes. The cliff notes, basically, I came, uh, went to GIA in Santa Monica in 88. Um, actually finally found something academically that I loved and was actually quite good at. Um, so I graduated, top of my class, and then went off to Boston because I was dating a girl from Boston. And I thought on my way back to UK, I could see the country. And so I drove across country with her, got to Boston, got a job. Um, fairly quickly because I thought I don't want to leave her and maybe I can get a job. And that was for about three years, mostly antique jewelry, uh, tremendous training, buying and selling jewelry with a fascinating fellow who'd been in the business years. And then moved out in 91 to California, to uh, Northern California this time, to San Francisco, um, together with Steve, who, well, he was there. He was the one that got me to move out to California in 91 and uh, started working for a small firm up in the Bay Area. And we were buying and selling used Rolexes, used watches, diamonds and jewelry. And I had the background in buying and selling jewelry. So I fit right in there um, and worked that for a couple of years until I realized I needed and wanted to do my own thing. And having been told in Boston a few years ago, a few years prior that, you know, I'd never have my own business by a fairly nasty, unpleasant fellow I worked with. <laughs> I had quite a strong motivation to say, you know, screw you, I'm going to do it myself. So He probably knew you were just good and wanted to keep you for his own, or what? why do you think maybe, he would have told know. you that? I, he couldn't tell you now. Um, he was a fairly unpleasant just fellow. Just an angry man. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's what I did. I, I negotiated to buy the, the part of my business or part of the business away, um, from Dan, who was my um, employer at the time, and he was gracious and generous to do that, allow me to do it. Um, so then I spent the next six months, six years, seven years, buying and selling jewelry, watches, uh, all around the Bay Area, Sacramento, Carmel. In fact, I came down to San Diego for because um, we had some business associates down here. And did that up until about right around the Christmas of 99, and then, I, then the, the business in Silicon Valley was blooming. 
and my wife at the time's business store could use my help so I decided to go and help them at Christmas at which point I realized I sort of missed the interaction with the end user when you're buying and selling between dealers it, it's it can be great but it's there's less emotion it's just transactional yeah it's here it is here's the price can you use it uh, yeah fine no problem um, and actually the the defining moment for me which I think is probably worth mentioning a young guy um, or younger than me at the time um, came in done well in Silicon Valley and wanted to um, give himself a nice little gift so he decided to buy a Rolex Submariner stainless steel now to me a Rolex Submariner wasn't that exciting from a watch standpoint but and also from a financial business standpoint we weren't Rolex dealers but we could certainly source them and you ended up making about 500 bucks on a used Rolex uh, stainless steel with box and papers and the price differential between new and used was again about $500 so I told him I said you know for the 500 bucks extra you might as well get a new one and I can help you out with that so he agreed gave me a deposit and about two weeks later when he came to pick up the watch um, you know, I sized it for him put it on his wrist um, he, he paid the balance everything was great and as he walked out of the store and we had a, a buzzer on the door to get out uh, I said you know Joe you know enjoy the watch thanks very much great to great to see you and he turned around and looked at me with a big smile and he pumped his fist which again you can't see that in this but the emotion my hairs on my arms still stick up when I think about that because that emotional connection was that did it for me and from that day on I realized I need to be selling to not dealers but to the people who actually love this stuff and enjoy it that's fantastic so um so that sort of changed the course because uh, i thought i was going to be a whole you know, on the wholesale side sure at that point um so then i became um a partner in that business uh f until 2008 uh at which point silicon valley was a little bit in free fall um the crash and that business couldn't support um three principles so I ended up leaving um, and spent the next year, so the 2009, creating Independent in Time, which is a website um, specifically to support independent watchmakers. Um, I'd started with Peter Speak Marin, was the first guy in 2003 in uh, Redwood City in our store. And there we had you know, major brands, Vacheron, uh, Glasuta, Original, IWC, Blancpain, and various other, Ulysse Nardin, um, some great brands. Uh, but I'd found this watch online uh, late at night with an enamel dial. And enamel dials in steel cases are pretty rare. They're usually Enamel dials are usually only for the high-end special Precious watches. metals and things yeah. like that. Yep. Yeah, or Minute Repeater or Torbjorn or something for the big brands. Well, here I found a guy who was doing it in his, his basic entry-level steel watch, and I was intrigued. Plus, I liked the fact that it was um, elongated Romans, very classic, blued steel hands. And I thought, wonder who this guy is. So that was the beginning of um, the independent watch world for me. Um, so as I moved forward through 2003 to 2008, I start, we added a, one or two watchmakers a year. Um, Lang and Hein, Marker Lang was the next one, Vianney Halter. Um, the Harbrings in 2005, Richard and Maria, I started working with them. And 
when I left at the end of 2008, I realized I really didn't want to work with the big brands anymore. I just wanted to help and support these artisanal watchmakers. That's so, so cool. Um, I think it's really, really interesting that you struck out on your own just to do it based on, at the end of the day, it's really based on emotion, right? Working with the customer and then also yeah. working with something super special that can't be bought by everyone everywhere. Yeah, and that's, I feel very fortunate that I actually figured that out and found it um, relatively early on, uh, especially early on in, in the independent watch movement. Um, so that allowed me to really get a good sense of who were the, the, the right people to work with. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, I can buy and sell almost anything, but you want to really do it with people that are fun and interesting and that you feel like you want to support, certainly on the supply side. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, on the, on the selling side, I, there are some people I don't want to buy our cool watches. Right. It's rare, but, you know, right. uh, and that, sound, that may sound you know, stupid and maybe fiscally not, not very clever, but that's, that's the way I look at it. Well, that sort of brings us to kind of where we are today, right? You mm -hmm. know, you've got Passion Fine Jewelry here on Cedros and Solana Beach carrying the brands, many of which you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, so one of my questions I was going to ask was how those relationships started. Right. So it sounds like you already had some of those already in line before opening this shop. Yes. Yeah, very much so. And that when we opened this shop, uh, we had a discussion of who we wanted to work with um obviously and i had a few watches from the harborings from speak marin um that were you know new watches that i'd taken as payment for exiting the other the other business um and then i also had these relationships that i'd set up and uh we realized that we didn't want to work with the big brands on the watch side because it wasn't exciting anymore. They were opening their own boutiques, and so that the, the whole business was changing. So, let's support the artisanal watchmaker, independent watchmakers. Was what we did. So, um, we I got in contact with all with some of the other watchmakers um, that I talked to over the years and said, "This is what we're doing. We're starting up a brick and mortar store, and you know, would you be interested in working with us? Because we like what you do." So that's how it sort of started. So what's the structure of the store as far as the employees go? How many employees? Um, it's just Jana and I, my wife and I. Um, we're, it's a corporation and there's no real, I mean, we're the employees of the corporation. But true family business. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jana's background is jewelry and watches. She worked for a prominent jeweler here in San Diego and did was their top-selling salesperson for a while. Um knows diamonds in and out and and watches is you know, another passion of hers which is kind of unusual for for girls quite frankly um it tends to be male oriented but um there are a lot of women that love watches and she's one of them so do you find that business segments growing currently the women's division um, it is it's but it's still much smaller than the men's and it just uh, maybe there's a mechanical aspect of it that that just triggers guys brains it's you know cool cars cool watches there's, there's that similarity of the micro mechanics sure. um but there are there are absolutely there are plenty of women that love that as well so um just as far as again kind of just speaking about the shop um you have kids mm -hmm. um how was that growing a business 
and also balancing family life just from an entrepreneurial standpoint so that people kind of understand because obviously the hours of retail not always very forgiving mm. especially when it's a family business it's your baby yeah it's i mean it can be tough uh you've got to love it you absolutely have to love it um and if you don't go and do something else because it's it's a time you know it, it takes a lot of time to do this i mean when we started this business in 2010 uh we lived five minute walk away from here and i knew that we'd be spending six days a week here sometimes 10 11 12 hours a day to get this thing off the ground and that requires you know not commuting in my world we talked about it earlier um for the kids you know saturday most kids see their parents on saturdays my kids have never seen me on saturday I've I've always worked Saturdays. Well, actually, not quite true. When I was wholesale, my older kids saw me a little bit. But you know, our days off uh, Sunday, and then occasionally Mondays. Mondays was the day to do stuff. But Sundays is a day with the kids, and that you know now they're a little bit older. The younger ones, fifteen and sixteen, so they're less interested in us. But when they were little, <laughs> Sunday was our day. You know, it was family day, and it was very um, very important for us to spend that day with the kids. Sure. So. Um, but they, you know, they get it. This is they get to live in Solana Beach, and I think they are recognizing the fact that that's a pretty amazing place to live. Yeah. So, what's it like taking vacations? Is that difficult? Just being away from the business, not necessarily just emotionally, but just operationally. Um, yes and no. I mean, one of the aspects that we decided is that we need to take vacations. Um, growing up in England, everybody takes four weeks vacation. Americans don't take enough vacation. I'll tell you right now, you don't take enough vacation. I could not agree more. Um, it's really important to recharge and to sort of reset. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I've always taken the week off after Christmas because, you know, December is nuts for us. We're working four, uh, four <laughs> six, seven days a week the last couple of, last couple of weeks in December. Um, it... it Operationally, that's one of the the benefits of not having employees. We can just close the doors and say, you know, passion's closed for a couple of weeks. Um, and we've at this point, we've our clients are pretty well, I say, well trained. They understand that we need family time as well. Um, if we didn't have kids, maybe that'd be a different story. But um, we do, so we we definitely do take vacations, um, and and it's important as I say. So. Uh, we have a couple of uh, friends who are uh, willing and able to open the store when we're not here, and we trust them. And obviously, that's a big deal in this business: is trust. You, you know, just to open, to ha hand the keys to somebody we don't know or we don't trust, that's never going to happen. So. Well, and especially given you know inventory yeah. and the prices associated. Yeah, yeah, I would say trust is major. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you touched a little bit on the brands that you carry. Um, what do you find to be kind of the impetus as to why somebody would be drawn to an independent over, say, a Rolex or an Omega? That's a good question, and I I get asked that quite often um, because for the for the most part, the watch uh, you call them brands or watchmakers that we work with, most people, even if they're into watches, have never even heard of them. Because right. they don't advertise. There's no, you'll never see them in a magazine or no budget. Um, no, there's no budget for advertising. It, it typically, the guys that reach out to us, 
usually have been into watches for a while. Uh, they've probably had a Rolex. That's a great first starting watch because it's so well known and it's sort of what I call it easy to buy. Um, that is, if you can find one. <laughs> um, Today, it's a little different. Yeah. But, you know, that's many of my clients came from that their first watch was a Rolex or an Omega, maybe. Um, then they got into some of the other more interesting Swiss brands, German brands, um, you know, Blancpans, Glassutas, IWCs, all those guys. And then if they're really crazy about this subject, which most of my clients are, they've delved further and further. And if they get to meet me, then obviously they're going to be exposed to the independent watchmakers. Um, many obviously don't meet me, but they have gone down that rabbit hole, if you will, and they come across an independent watchmaker, maybe online on a forum or one of their buddies has a, has a watch and they're like, what is that? Oh, well, this is a Speakmarin or this is a Langenhain, Vianney Halter. Um, oh, we never heard of that. No, well, you wouldn't because they don't advertise. So then they go online. That's the first thing today um, and, you know, research it. And they'll probably find that watchmaker's website. Uh, or maybe if they're on Instagram or Facebook, they'll find a page and they'll see pictures and so forth and do their research. Um, at which point, these watchmakers that we work with, you know, their website's linked with us um, as an authorized dealer. And we find people reaching out saying, you know, do you have a blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, we start talking to people. And um, hopefully the, the product's compelling enough, which is why they reach out and secondarily if you can um talk to them in a way that tells them that you know what you're talking about and you're not some you know secondhand car dealer trying to sell everything to everybody um you know then you'll you'll create a relationship and that's what it's about we don't sell to everybody that contacts us because you're not going to do that um but hopefully you make an impression on enough people that they go yeah i like those people sound like they know what they're talking about and so you've actually turned business away before I say turn it away. Uh, you just not you're just not going to connect with every person. You know? I see. It's a more of a it's probably more of a personality um, issue. And again, I'm you know I'm not a I don't call myself a die in a wool salesperson where I'm I can sell to everybody. I, I can't. I don't think anybody can. But I'm I have a certain way of interacting with people, and that works for many people but it doesn't work for some people um and i'm not aggressive i'm that's i think you'll you know that about me that's i may be too laid back and sometimes my wife says i'm too laid back you, you need to call these people more often and or email them and text them um that's just not my personality so well i mean i guess to a certain degree if somebody's down the path of an independent watch i guess on one hand the it's not that the product sells itself but I mean, frankly, there's so many limited pieces that I, mm -hmm. that's an irony in and of itself. There are so many limited pieces, but there, there are so few pieces that yep. it's kind of, you can't sleep on them, right? Because well, if you do, they might be gone. Yeah. And that's, um, absolutely. I mean, the, the big difference when you compare, you know, these, the guys that we work with, you know, the, the most, um, tiny production is probably, you know, somebody like Roger Smith you know, making 10 watches a year, you know, Roger and I have an agreement I can sell his watches. I haven't sold one to date because he's got a three-year waiting list. And right. you know, quite frankly, most people, they, they'd, they'd like to deal directly with a watchmaker. Um, that's one of the aspects that we we do here is we bring the watchmakers, uh, we do events here in the store so the collectors can actually meet 
the guy's whose name is on the dial. Right. You know, I didn't a, even think about that. Yeah, that's people trying to skip over you to get, you know straight from the source. Well, yeah, and that's been pointed out to me many times that that's a uh, you know a, quite a flaw in my business model, if you will. Um, I like to think that the watchmakers I deal with, um, not think I know, and that you know they are. If somebody does that, they're going to say, "Hey, Tim, so and so called me from you know, blah blah. He said he talked to you about this watch." Um, you know, however the client wants to buy it, we'll help them out. Um, and if you, you know, you get your commission either way. So um, it works. Um, it's There's been a few instances where it hasn't worked quite well, but I guess that's human nature. Um, so how is it too when you're thinking about your business model and dealing with these independent watchmakers, I would imagine it's pretty restrictive as to who can carry them. Well, it's simply, yeah, because of the, the sheer lack of volume. If exactly. You will. Yeah. So let's say that there were only 10 pieces, right? Of mm-hmm. a certain watch, you have an interested buyer yep. and you can't find one, but you, do you have relationships with other vendors? Do you guys talk to each other? Because do you know who carries the same brands you do? Yeah. I would imagine yeah, it's yeah, a yeah, very yeah. small world. It is. It's a very small world. There's a, a guy in Philly, Martin. Um, he carries quite a few of the uh, small independents that we do. Um, and you know, over the years, we you know, we talk and there's, there's, I think, been maybe one instance or something where he was able to source me a watch that I didn't have, I couldn't get. Um, but at the end of the day... Um, we are competitors, so there, there, there is a there, there is that's the reality of the of the business world. Sure, um, you know, I if the client has to have the watch I, and I can't get it, then I'll just send them to Martin. Um, and um, but ultimately, you know, I'll try and find the watch that, so that we can sell it to him uh, and keep him in the fold, if you will. But it's you know, everybody knows each other. It's a it's a very small world. Kind of a what goes around comes around. Yeah type of mentality i think that's healthy um i've always just been a big subscriber that there there is the opportunity for everybody to win Mm -hmm. you know um so let's chat a bit about about basel world i've never been you've been how many times have you been to basel uh this year was 19 years but i there was one year i skipped oh okay so Uh, 18 times yeah i've been 18 18 times yeah They've undergone some some major changes over the last year. Huge. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about what Basel World's like for those of us who've never been. What is it, first of all? Well, it's it's a uh, so the, with one of the oldest and was biggest trade shows for watches and jewelry in Europe, and it was essentially the it was started off as a jewelry show um, with a few of the watchmakers from Switzerland joining in and and as as the watch business became bigger and bigger during the 90s the watch companies started taking more and more of the space and were able to pay for these um, bigger and bigger booths so by the time i showed up in 2000 uh when you walked in the the main hall hall one was full of big watch brands rolex patek uh, richemont group uh, swatch group were there elise nardin i mean everybody that anybody that was anybody was there pretty much um and at the same time that year uh the cartier and a couple of the richemont brands 
had already split off and was they were exhibiting in Geneva at the SIHH, which was run concurrently. It was right after Basel World. So you did Basel World three, four days, and then you went to Geneva for a couple of days. And Geneva show, uh, as it is today, was by invitation. Um, so if you carried any of the brands that were exhibiting, they would essentially pay for you to go to Geneva, pay for your hotel. It was, it was pretty fancy at the time. Um, I remember staying in the President Wilson Hotel in Geneva, which um, is, I would think, think, don't think I'd ever stay there on my own, but it was uh, quite fancy. Um, so Basel, when you walked in that show, you were confronted with two and three-story buildings inside a big exhibition hall. And there was a buzz about it that was, and still to this day is, although <laughs> this year was less buzz, but it's still exciting. Um, everybody then was showing their product for the year, essentially. So the whole show was set up primarily for retailers. There was there was a little bit of press, but nothing like it is today. Um, this was, you know, prior to the almost prior to the web. So it was. Uh, magazine guys and so forth with the press but essentially it was all retailers from all around the world who would show up in Switzerland uh, to see the product for the year and to make and to place orders for the whole year essentially um, I think the watch brands they would show us new pieces very cool very exciting we'd take we'd place orders they'd take orders and I think a little bit of was for them was to see how the market would react to some of their products because you know if they showed you 10 new watches and everybody loved eight but two were dogs guess what they wouldn't show up in the catalog they got cut yeah yeah um and the product wouldn't get delivered until later in that year and that tells you they were doing you know a little bit of research and development for them for the market so they actually do listen to the people that are actually buying them they're not just sometimes force fear <laughs> sometimes <laughs> okay, no. fair enough yeah for the most part these these companies um they're big, you know, they're corporate entities, um, and they have a viewpoint. Some companies are better than others at listening to, con- to the consumers or to the, to the retailers. Um, but fast forward to today, I, I mean, I don't, haven't dealt with the big brands for almost 10 years, over 10 years at this point, um, and have no interest because um, they really now are struggling because they haven't listened to the consumers, they haven't listened to retailers, and then they and they also want to do their own, have their own boutiques, which I get, um, but it, it's not, you know, from my perspective, it's not exciting as a business. They're, they still make some cool watches, but business-wise, no, thank you. Basel historically has been open to the public or yes. only to vendors. No, so no, no very anybody much. and everybody can go. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You just have to you pay the ticket and you can go in. Uh, you can't as a as a public, you, it's difficult to get in to see the what in, inside the booths to see the watches of the big brands because you need an appointment. Yeah, typically, um, unless you're a massive collector and you've got connections with the brands, and certainly they're going to open their doors to you. But um, just a regular guy walking in, wanting to see watches, you can see them in windows and the showcases on the outside of the booths, but you're probably not going to get to handle them, um, except if you go to the AHCI area where. A lot of these independent watchmakers are um, there. You can touch and look at watches. Um, th- the watchmakers are more than thrilled to take their watches out and show you. And that's just a different hall within yeah, the that's, exhibition. Yeah. The HCI is the Academy of Independent Watch and Clock Collectors where the, a lot of the watchmakers we work with belong to. And that was set up by Sven Anderson um, 
and uh, the other guy, Italian, I can't remember. Uh, oh, um, Vincent Calabresi. Probably, I don't know their background history, I'm going to say around mid-90s, um, basically as a, a collaborative effort to help promote independent watchmakers. Um, those two, Vincent and Sven, were two of the early uh, independent watchmakers who hit, you know, went out on their own. And they recognized that you know, they needed, or some of these other watchmakers could use, you know, as a, they all teamed up, they could get space at Basel, and so then they, therefore they could exhibit together. Um, because Basel is not cheap to exhibit, it's really expensive. Right, everybody talks about the sausages. Yeah, yeah, they're very expensive. They're tasty, but they're expensive. Um, so yeah, that that's yeah that's Basel. So it's it it has evolved um, dramatically. Um, so it's changing. The, you know, the whole world's changing, and nothing in life stays the same. So the last year, Swatch Group gone. Yeah, they pulled out. Um, so there was a sort of gaping hole in the middle of Basel Hall Number One this year. I am, in, but it's really a very different business than the big brands. Hmm. Well, touching just on the industry, just in general, um, have you, you sort of alluded to some of the big brands expressing interest in opening up their own boutiques? Mm -hmm. There's this all-encompassing conversation of brick and mortar dying. Yep. What are your thoughts on that as a brick and mortar owner? Um, it, it, have you felt those effects one iota or... Um, where do you well where do you i kind can of tell you i mean our business was up about 30 percent last year that's um, fantastic over the previous year and you know people wow well, you should know you know do you know why why is that and i should know exactly why i i don't i i think it's for us it's a it's a combination of two things one is that we work with these independent watchmakers who as time goes on more people are finding out about them and recognizing what they do is quite compelling. And two, it's just a time factor in a brick and mortar, in a retail store. If you treat your clients right, more and more people are going to hear about you. You know, we do a lot of local business and the jewelry side of things. And that's a, that takes time to be, to be, for people to find out about you, come in, have a good experience and tell our friends. That just takes time to build. And this is our ninth year in business. So it, it took a while to get going on that side of it. Um, and the watches, the, you know, the watches are very niche. This is, our clients, for the most part, are not here in San Diego. They're uh, all around the country and all around the world. Well, not quite all around the world, but we have clients outside of the U.S. as well that find us. That's great. So how would you say the industry's changed since your involvement, just even since the early 90s? Uh, it's changing. Um, yeah, the so the the concept going back to Basel of you know placing orders for the year in one place that that's that's over and that's part of the reason I think Basel is struggling, uh, has been struggling because the retailers decided they don't need to spend the money, like you say, to go and overpay for a sausage in Switzerland to order their watches where you could do that throughout the year. Um, you also as you know the business is changing so quickly to place orders for a whole year at one time doesn't make sense for most retailers i don't think anymore um on top of that the brands have changed the way they've you know they've gone from working with independent jewelers retailers to open their own brands which means they also get to send some of the 
the best product to their own boutiques, which to my mind is one of the reasons I'd never work with them because it's it's not a level playing field anymore. Well, and two prices have just, you know, kind of become astronomical even well especially in the pre-owned market and how everything is you know be it a trend or yeah that i mean I, i'm not an economist I, I i'm not sure i can comment on that other than the fact that you know the stock markets are making a lot of money banks you can't make any money in a bank so i think people with a lot of money have decided that there are some alternative quote-unquote um, investment potentials diversification and yeah i mean you look at the vintage car market although i think i hear that softening a little bit um i think that people have recognized that you know and i've always known from the jewelry side f very 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 fine quality um period jewelry that's in good condition um, is an incredible place to put money because they're not making any more of it and over the years more of it gets broken destroyed melted down because somebody doesn't like it so for the connoisseurs that appreciate fine artisanal antique jewelry it's going to go up in value same thing with wine same thing with vintage watches and we see that in what the vintage watch market to my mind is a little bit crazy right now um you know we were buying and selling used rolex 5513s for 2500 bucks you know you buy them for two you sell them for 2500 dollars um, now all of a sudden some marketing genius realized that those faded dials and bezels that we always used to take off exchange out for a new dial have character yeah or, or patina, add character yeah or whatever some genius thought well you know who's that the uh, you know a patina uh, I mean you know the, guy, the idea of a watch sitting on some guy's wrist and he's fishing in the Caribbean and so it fades that's cool you know in the old days they weren't cool they were faded Nobody could, you couldn't sell them. Nobody would buy them. So you changed out the bezel insert. You changed out the dial. And all of a sudden, you could sell the watch. So, you know, refinish it. Make it look as close to new as possible. People would buy them. And now, it's a complete opposite of that. You touch the watch and you, you know, the value is plummeting because it's now no longer original. Uh, it doesn't have patina. Um, it, that's a whole different you know, business to what we do here. And it's, I, I think it's fascinating. But it requires an awful lot of study and focus because... Along with that comes, as we all know, all the fakes and the stuff that's been monkeyed around with. And to you sort of touched on it, um, but for those just finding their way into your store for the first time, mm -hmm. maybe not even knowing that you were here, yeah. uh, it's kind of not a busy pedestrian street, but pretty no. busy, uh, especially on the weekends mm -hmm. um, with all the stores around you. How do you justify price to certain folks uh, by way of explaining why these are expensive? For those that just don't quite get it, they're not watch people, but yet they find their way into this nice jewelry shop with beautiful couches and yeah, really yeah, cool I mean, looking watches. So unless you um, understand and appreciate these artisanal watchmakers, it's quite a tricky tricky subject or tricky um concept to 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 get because you know you can buy a mechanical watch online that's you know works and runs and does fine tells reasonable time for you know 500 bucks a thousand bucks um and that's why i say the products that we represent these artisanal watchmakers it's it's a very different product than a mass-produced um item which is what the majority of mechanical watches are uh, whether it's a high-end brand or a low-end brand. 
um, how the how the differentiate. Um, really, I, what I do is I explain what these guys do and how they do it. And at the end of the day, why they do it is also really important. But what they do is different from the big watch brands. So all the big brands, the watches are made on essentially on assembly line, and you have um, technicians more than watchmakers. Uh, yeah, they may, may have gone to watchmaking school, but they're not qualified to make a watch from scratch. What they are is, is watch technicians. So they will do an individual part. So maybe there's one guy that assembles this main bridge and there's another guy that puts in the jewels and there's another guy that does the pillage. There's another guy over here that does black polishing. Um, and then it's a collaborative effort at the end of the day. It gets put together. And then you also have a different part of the company that designs the dial, uh, the hands, the shape of the case, and they put it all together. And they make some cool watches. Whereas the artisanal watchmaker that we work with, the reason they cost more money, relatively speaking, is that um, it's one guy doing it, typically, start to finish. Not only do they have the, the mechanical wherewithal to design a movement or maybe use somebody else's movement and adapt it to their own specifications, but also design a case, the dial hands, and put it all together. So they're the designer and the manufacturer, yeah. more or less. And it's really rare. In the watch industry, you're usually one or the other. You usually have the 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 mechanical uh, maths physics science side and so therefore you become more on the watchmaking side or you're more on the art side so you have a sense of aesthetic the design style of the shape of the hands the shape of a case a good looking dial and you know as I say it's a collaborative effort on the brands and they put it all together and they come out with some cool looking watches um, like an MBNF isn't that kind of how they operate yeah, Max that, Booser and friends. Yeah, that's that's absolutely a collaborative effort, very much so. Although Max, to my mind, he's the steering, you know, the steering guide of that company. Where ultimately, it's obviously his design and or his design viewpoint that gets put into practice. Um, with the these artisanal watches, and and that's the same with Max. The aesthetic of the watch is that comes from that watchmaker and what their background is and what their viewpoint on life is. Um, and that's part of the why, which to me is kind of cool. Not everybody's watches will appeal to, will appeal to everybody. Sarpaneva is pretty polarizing. You either like his stuff or you don't. There's not a lot of in between. Um, somebody like Speak Marin appeals to maybe a little bit more classic, although they've changed in the last few years. Uh, Marco Lang from Lang & Hein, very traditional. You like classic looking watches, his watches will be recognized you know, 100 years from now as, as a quote-unquote classic, uh, elegant dress watch. You know. Well, I think it's probably a good time. What are you wearing today? What's what's on your wrist? Uh, well, today I have uh, a Lane. Uh, Torsh D. Lane is a Finnish watchmaker. Um, he His sort of claim to fame and how I came across him, he won a, uh, a Langer and Zerner in Glasuta, runs a competition every year for... To, to, for for young watchmakers or watchmakers to uh, come up with a creative complication and they give a prize out for that. And Torshti won that, um, I'm going to say maybe three or four years ago now. I came across him via that online and I reached out to him. And um, his first watch that he made was actually a chronograph um, with a wonderful Valjou. He made two of them. Um, a Valjoux 22 caliber, which is a wonderful column wheel chronograph. Um, 
I wasn't in that. That was a little bit rich for my blood. So I went with his uh, initial second watch, which was the 1817. Uh, and this is a sort of classic chronometer-looking watch. It's the movement's based on a Unitas 6498, but obviously heavily modified and all hand-finished to his specifications. And it's got a, a nice hand-engraved bridge on the back. The dial is, for me, there was a couple of options for dials. I picked the classic. I tend to like white Roman enamel dials. This is white Roman lacquer. Um, it's not enamel. Um, but very simple, classic-looking watch. Um, the movement's lovely, nicely finished, hand-finished. A lot of it's hand-finished by Torsti. Um, and I wanted to support him, and so I bought this watch. Um, and so this is 40 millimeter? 42 millimeter. 42? Yeah. The case is, a relatively speaking, an off-the-shelf case uh, from, I, I believe it's a German company called Fricker. I could be wrong there, but um, but it's the movement that you're buying, and I'm, you know, you're buying something of one guy's vision of what a watch should look like. And this is now two years old, so um, I met with him in Basel, you know, two weeks ago, and uh, his his next model is called the Gelidus, and it's uh, the dial's kind of interesting. He's um, we should be getting a few later this year, um, and he's changed the finishing on the movement um, as well. But it's still, you know, a huge amount of hand finishing by one guy. Um, it's beautiful. One guy's vision. Yeah. Kind of a Calatrava type setup, right? Hour hand, minute yeah, hand, sub seconds, sub seconds yeah. at six o'clock. Manual wind. It's, you know, that the movement, the Unitas 6498, you know, is a great, solid, wonderful movement. They run, you know, it's like a tractor motor. They run forever. Um, it's tried and tested. And if you know your, if you know how to make a watch, then you can make it work really well and uh, you can design something that's quite elegant from it and flame blue hands it looks like yep with uh, a domed crystal yep domed sapphire crystal that's beautiful um the the other exciting part for me is that when i met with torsty uh he's he's actually now going to be doing enamel dials um so and i asked him i said any chance i can send my watch back and upgrade to an enamel dial and he said yeah so that, oh, that's cool. Yeah, that makes me very happy. So for those who don't know the difference between lacquer and enamel, can you touch on kind of what that process is like? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Like? I, I tend to, you know. No, that's okay. I talk about these, you know, uh, use words and so forth. <laughs> um, so enamel dial is, it's fired in a kiln. It's essentially um, glass. So they start with a, a powder uh, and it's applied in different levels and it's fired in a kiln. Um, it's about seven, 800 degrees, I think. And so the powder melts, kind of like sand melts to glass. And it's uh, it's what old pocket watches use. And those dials, enamel dials, they don't fade. The, you know, 100-year-old po pocket watch with an enamel dial looks good, as good today as it did when it was made. Versus lacquer, which is a form of paint, which uh, will not last 100 years. This watch, if I remained with a this lacquer dial it wouldn't look like this in 100 years would it yellow typically or depends on given that it's white to start yeah it depends on well I'd, it probably possibly it depends on what was in the lacquer um i don't know what this would turn out but it but i guarantee it would not look like this in 100 years whereas an enamel dial i have a couple of enamel dial watches in my collection those dials as long as you don't drop them on the ground they'll stay pristine till forever um which which is kind of cool. And as I said earlier, the big brands typically they'll, they'll because the enamel dials are much more expensive to make and uh, difficult to make. And there's only typically a few people, a few companies 
uh, in Switzerland that make them, and they supply most of the watch brands. Um, the most com- most watch companies don't use them because they're that they're fantastically more expensive than a lacquer or or a, uh, a regular dial metal dial. So this piece here, um, as it as it stands, mm-hmm. what's the price of something like this? Again, from memory, so when I bought it, it was somewhere around $4,500. Um, I think there are still a few of these available. That He made them in a series of 10, each color metal for the movement. So this movement is rose gold. There's 10 of these, 10 yellows and 10 rhodium-plated movement. So pieces. 30 pieces yeah. on the, the dial side would look the same, but on the, 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 well, the dial, side? Well, you have a choice. It's the, the, the movement color is what determines the series. Um so, and I think today these are maybe a little bit more, but it's right around $5,000, let's say, give or take. Um, so if that, say, had an enamel dial? I don't know just the price because so he didn't tell me. Okay, uh, gotcha. I, um, but it will be, certainly will be a bit more. Certainly more expensive. Yeah, a little bit. And it should be a little bit more. But again, it's, I think, value for money, it's tough to, tough to beat something like this. Right. Um, now, going back to, we sort of touched on it with talking about clients like those who come in for the first time mm-hmm. as well as those who've been in that your wife likes to tell you to email more frequently. Yep. What, what is customer retention like in a business like this where you're selling something that is so niche? Uh, I think it's pretty good compared to the average uh, retail store, which, you know, jewelry stores as, as an industry, we've done a pretty poor job of, um, keeping customs i think it it the, the jewelry industry always used to be many years ago i'm going back 30 40 plus years ago it used to be a relationship business you know you had your you had a doctor you had a you know you had your dentist uh you had a hairdresser and you had a jeweler that you trusted and implicitly and that was who you went to mm-hmm. uh in the sort of 70s 80s um the jewelry industries on the retail side shifted to more of a transactional i think type of business which was a shame um because it's such a personal product at the end of the day. If you're selling a diamond to somebody as an engagement ring or an anniversary, you, on this side of you know the business or the counter, you're part of something pretty special. And I, and I think that that was take, a little bit taken out of, out of the whole business. Um, why? I don't know, I wasn't in the business in the 70s. But it certainly did happen. It, was, it went more to less of a relationship, more to price and um and that changed the the nature of the business so our guy you know our guys when they reach out and they've at this sort of niche part of the business with these watchmakers it is it becomes quite personal and, and there's a relationship there that you either make or you don't and it goes back to earlier when i said you know we're not going to sell to everybody that reaches out to us because there, there are personality differences and you're not going to hit it off with everybody you meet, hopefully more than than less. Um, I think it's really interesting because now that I'm hearing you speak about just the industry and, and the shopping experience, right, with uh, regards to diamond shopping, mm-hmm. it, it's almost as if marketing became the ruler for diamonds. Yeah. You know, yep. it, on down to what what do they say it is? Two months salary for an engagement ring or something. Like uh-huh. it's, it's all just made up figures more or less. As to what you should and shouldn't buy for your fiance, yeah. uh, and and they're major life decisions, right? Even just to get married in and of itself. So of course that purchase is going to feel like a major life event. Yeah. 
some of that's kind of been washed out based on marketing, I guess, maybe. Yeah, and and it's, uh, I mean, we feel very fortunate when people want to work with us. Um, that Whereas watches be- don't. That I guess that's where I was going is that, like, in the watch community, I don't really feel like in an independent situation, not maybe Rolex, maybe mm-hmm. that's a little bit more marketing-centric, but yeah. not to, you know poo-poo on on Rolex but it's one of those things that I feel like these are still maybe major life decisions and very emotional purchases whereas maybe the diamond very often is, they are yeah um diamonds should be <laughs> right a lot of them aren't and it's a shame I think um because I think as human beings that connection that personal connection is very very important it's going back to why I do what I do is that guy buying a Rolex Submariner for me as a watch, it's not that exciting. It, even then, it wasn't that exciting. Um, and that his made, reaction, however, yeah, his reaction was yeah. priceless. Yeah, and and we get that. We've you know many of our clients become close friends of ours. Um, we delivered a watch last October to a client in Baltimore, um, and it was to celebrate a major, major um, positive thing in this guy's life. One of his kids had had a, a major surgery, and he came through out the other side great and he's and he's doing fine and this gentleman wanted to um purchase a very special watch from roman gautier to to celebrate that and the fact that um we hand delivered it to him in baltimore um made made that whole uh trans quote-unquote transaction that much more special it it became its relationship at this point um we didn't know but when we were there it turned out that it was his wife and his 35th wedding anniversary and he was having a dinner with his three kids, um, and we got invited to that. Um, and that, you know, we were the outsiders. And I think some of the <laughs> couple of his kids were like, "Who on earth is Jan and Tim, and why are they here?" Um, but he he wanted to have us there, um, and it was fantastic. That's incredible. Uh, and that you know, that's not the first time stuff like that's happened. And I hope hope it won't be the last. But it's those types of experiences enrich our lives and hopefully it's you know it works both ways sure what's interesting too i think about the watch community um not just from a a interpersonal standpoint but there seems to be a very um specific personality in the industry Mm -hmm. um i i want to say it's almost borderline impossible to be into watches without being a collector Mm -hmm. so why why do you think that is why why do you feel like these almost drive a person to collect multiple as opposed to say, you know, I just, I want my one watch. I mean, there are those people out there, right? That just want their one watch. Yeah. And some people pride themselves on that, frankly, of not being a collector. Yeah. I could never be that. (laughs) I I definitely have the collecting gene. Yeah. Um, I have had, you know, to to my wife's chagrin, she's like, throw this stuff away in the garage. Uh, (laughs) I, I, you know, because I appreciate and understand what these guys do, I want one of everybody's. Um, right. Financially, that's not possible, but you know that's that's what that's where my mindset is, and I see it with collectors um, who have the means. Once they find something that they they love and appreciate, whether it be a car or a watch, wine, cigars, all that type of stuff, um, I, I think a lot of people have that collecting gene, if you will. Um, to be in this business and to be a collector can be tricky because you know I get exposed to products that I'm like I want that for myself. Yeah. Where commercially, I should say 
no, I should offer this to my customers, clients first. Um, I, I am a little selfish at times, and I do have a couple of watches in the box, which, sure, I could have sold, um, but I want them. Part of that also is, uh, and this is fundamentally why we do that, you know, I want to support these watchmakers. So I put my money where my mouth is. I buy their products for myself. Um, it also, I think, I may be wrong here, but I think it helps when I'm talking to a potential clients when I, you know, well, this is my watch. I, you know, I vote with my feet. I, I believe in these guys. I'm not just selling something to sell it. You know, it's, uh, I do, I recognize what they do. It's not easy to do what they do in the watch industry. It's absolutely a sort of exercise of blood, sweat, and tears to get to where they are, where they can make their own watch. It's, it's The industry is not set up for independent watchmakers. It wants you to be um, a sort of a minion or a cog in the wheel of the big big business. And the big business is, let's face it, it's all about making money. You know, Richemont, Swatch, uh, LVMH, those guys are not here to, you know, do it for the enjoyment of doing it. They're doing it for real money. Um, and that. You know that's reality of the world. Nothing wrong with that. Just it's not that fun. As a, you know, I got to this point in in the business of the watch business, being involved with those brands is not fun anymore. You know, just doing something for money is it's not fun. There's got to be more to it than than that. At least that's my viewpoint. And I've, I just I'm very very fortunate that I found um, Peter Speak Marin. You know, late night sounds weird on a you know computer website saw his watch and went what is that how you know who is this guy never even heard of independent watchmakers really uh and that's what started it in 2003 that's very cool yeah well as you said kind of a collector's bug uh mentioning cars wine mm -hmm. cigars is there anything else that you collect then since you have the bug cufflinks cufflinks yeah, I mean, I've, my background in antique jewelry, I've always bought and sold antique jewelry, and I love it, but I can't wear antique jewelry as a guy, So, but except I can, I wear cufflinks, um, which is kind of an anomaly here in Solana Beach, because well, sure. I don't think I know anybody else that Board wears. shorts and t-shirts, yeah. sandals. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so in the winter, when I don't roll my sleeves up, I can wear my cufflinks. Um, collecting, what else do I collect? I love... I love early American silver, but again, I don't. You don't live a lifestyle here where you can fill a house full of cool silver silverware. Um, I like wine. I have a small collection of wine. Um, I come by that fairly honestly. My father was in the wine business. Uncles in the wine business. So I was taught about wine fairly early on, um, and I appreciate. It. I, lo I love very fine, lovely wine. It's it's expensive, and to drink Any something particular varietal. Um, I tend to be quite classic, having been brought up in England on Bordeaux, which is claret, which is a, a blend of typically cabs and Merlots. Um, so, but I love California wine. I'm I'm a big fan of California wine, having lived in the Bay Area for almost 20 years. I spend a lot of time in Napa Valley, arguably too much time, <laughs> um, supposedly buying and selling jewelry, but I ended up uh, making a dear friend up there who's a jeweler plus a winemaker, so... Um, I got exposed to some extraordinary wines up there that a lot of people never even heard of. Um, so yeah, I I tend to be more on the cab Merlot side than than the Pinot side. But I know there are plenty of Pinots that people love, and I just haven't found many of them. Sure, uh, I I kind of like most red wines. 
Yeah. Um, Pinot is actually one of my favorites. I'm okay. a big Willamette Valley, Oregon kind of drinker. Yeah. Um, sort of a Burgundian yeah. type style of winemaking, something like that. Um, Much more difficult than Cabs and Merlot. It's, it's a, it's a very m- fickle grape. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think I've tended to steer away from it because what I've tried, certainly in California, has been not great. Um, it's easier to buy and find a good cab or a good decent Merlot or a nice Meritage blend. Um, but I've drunk some fabulous Pinots. That's great. Um, cars, into cars. Love cars. Mm. Storage issue. Storage, yeah. So watches are way easier to store. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I have the benefit of having a you know, store with a safe. A shop, yeah. Um, I love cars. Um, as a kid early memories my uncle um drove me from london to my parents house i think i probably was seven eight nine years old uh and he had he was a successful one in the family and he at an early age liked cars and made a lot of money so he bought himself a 67 or 68 330 gtc um and he drove me um between the seats his wife was in the passenger seat and I sat on the on the box between the seats and he drove me up the M1 in those days there was very little traffic and we did 140 miles an hour and I was my eyes were out on stalks I was excited it was and the smell you know the leather of the interior a little bit of oil gas smell from those older cars yeah um, it was silver and that stuck in my mind forever um, cars were cool my dad not interested in cars at all. Something tells me you weren't wearing a seatbelt. Oh God, no, no. <laughs> at 140. No. But there was no cars on the road back then. This was this was in uh, this would have been in sort of 1975, let's say. Um, and uh, but yeah, as I say, my dad no interest in cars. Um, but he had a couple of friends who did, fortunately. And again, one of the Miles who did love cars. He had an Alpha Spider. Very cool. Um, and I remember him bring, coming to the house and I was able to sit on his knee and being able to sit on his knee, I could reach the gas pedal and rev the engine, which was you know very exciting. Um, but it wasn't until I was 18, uh, yeah, about 18, sitting with my best friend in England who I grew up with, a guy called, named called Peter, sitting in a car talking about you know what we we're going to do when we were older. And one of the things I remember saying to him was, I'm going to have a car with a turbo engine one day. Didn't know what it was. Couldn't. It was unreal to me that I could have a car with a turbo engine, age 17 or 18. Fast forward to Boston, and the first car I bought in the U.S. was a, and this would have been in like 90, 1989, I think, was a Isuzu Impulse Turbo. And it was a an 88 model. This was a, a two-door uh, five-speed rear engine, sorry, rear wheel drive car. And it had a uh, Lotus-tuned suspension and a four-cylinder, two-liter turbocharged engine. And the day I bought it, I was thrilled. It was bright red. It was a great car, really fun. It was used. Um, it wasn't until about a week after I'd been driving it that that conversation four years, five years prior stuck in my head I was like oh my god I actually realized a dream and it also you know that was exciting for me because I was like wow 
there's also a big responsibility in that in that moment recognizing the fact that you know we're on this planet we get to determine what how it comes out there's you know you people can blame other people and people most people do that quite frankly but how your life turns out is really up to you and if you set your heart on something and decide something the first thing is just deciding it once you decide it talk about it put it down on paper let's say uh, my wife's a great list maker um, and that's part of our success I think on this business is we decide things and we make it happen um, and you know talking of cars yeah that was my first car that was fun sports car um, I've had a few others over the years nothing really exciting except for a BMW M Roadster which was oh fun. right those are quick yeah that was a great great little car um, and again I remember buying that car or deciding to buy the car my wife at the time came out and looked at the car and said, well, it's got no back seats. What are you going to do with the kids? I said, well, it's not for the kids. This is this is a fun car for us. Yeah, yeah. So um had that car for almost 10 years. Um, great, great fun car. Um, basically analog, if you will. You know, there was no traction control even on it. So it was a really oh, wow, cool. car. Yeah. Manual, obviously. Yeah, five-speed. Um 240 horsepower and lightweight fun and convertible you know coming from england you gotta have a convertible right because yeah. you can't in england you can't yeah, yeah it's useless um <laughs> so yeah that's cars are cool I, so I, what I, are you driving these days um we recently leased an audi a5 convertible because again convertible yeah because we can um <laughs> and i also i picked up a an old car and this you may laugh at me because of what you're what you're driving which no is lovely. no um it's an old jag um uh, xj8 uh vandom plus which oh, is yeah. a long one um they're terribly inexpensive um, what year 2002 okay that's navy blue with beautiful cream leather interior i mean it's it's a bit of an old man car but it's lovely and in england growing up a jag was like the ultimate car i mean Okay, Rolls Royce is maybe the ultimate ultimate, but nobody has nobody had Rolls Royces that I knew of. One family had Jags and um it appealed to me and when I found out my friend was selling it and for for the little amount of money that they are, I thought that would be a really cool car to have. Especially if he'd owned it. Um I knew the background of that car. He was a second owner and it was kept, you know, in great condition. So. And aside from the likes of, say, Aston Martin, that's kind of quintessentially British. Yeah, and Aston Martins are lovely and fast and very expensive, relatively speaking. This car was very inexpensive, and I thought, you know, that would be a cool car to have. Um, Just kind of a cruiser. Yeah, it's a cruiser. It's very, yeah, on the freeway, it's incredibly comfortable. Yeah, but it's really fun. Um, kids don't like it very much. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a lovely old car, and it, it smells of real leather, because guess what? It is real leather inside. Yeah, exactly. So what kind of advice would you give somebody looking to a either get into this business or dare I say, even open up a brick and mortar store? Uh, number one is you absolutely have to love this business. You right. gotta love the product. Um, because if you do that, if you understand it, then you can transfer that, that passion, that excitement for the product to a potential client. Cause if you don't have that, you're going to struggle. Um, it's, it's a, it's not an easy business to be in. Uh, it's not financially. It's um, there are way more probably easier ways to make money and way, make a lot more money. You don't make a lot of money doing this. Um, you do it because you love it. Um, hence the name of our business, Passion. 
it's but it's all I've ever done um and the fact that we get to create our own world our own business under our own terms um we feel very fortunate we can do that um but it's hard work you know and it's um at the end of the day you know make it or break it and you have to have a certain drive and a certain um understanding of that it's it's also pretty capital intensive um so you can self-finance you can you know you, i guess you could borrow money we get offered money all the time by various different banks i don't take it because i don't want to pay the interest on it sure i'd rather do it slowly bit by bit um but it's also a fun business you know it's some people call it sexy you know you're dealing with high-end products expensive products whether it's you know high-end jewelry or watches um but it's a it's a, at the end of the day it's a, like i said earlier it's a relationship business and that we get to have these incredible relationships with our clients um it's a very personal business as well and on you know going back to selling engagement ring or even that gentleman that bought the watch to celebrate um his kid's surgery y- you touch on very real human emotions um and that's pa- that's very powerful for us that's you know what we live on um and given today's society of social media and whatnot that isn't always that personal correct. isn't always that yeah. truthful even or factual uh it's a special time i think you know to own a brick and mortar and to be able to kind of get that human connection that you speak yeah, of. Yeah, I think uh, I think there's a whole generation of uh that that has sort of missed out. Um but once they once they get it if they if they get it in the right way, I think they they like it. Um you know, people talk about millennials and you know, they want their experiences as opposed to things, let's say. Um I think there's a there's a blend of both. I, I don't think people I don't think that collecting genes going to go away soon. I think it's part of our you know, makeup of human beings. Um, so I, I see there's always going to be people, be people who want to celebrate the arts. Art, art is very key to it's key to human beings, whether it's you know, paintings or sculptures or anything else. The independent watchmakers, you know, there's no other way to justify it than a piece of micro mechanical art because the timekeeping aspect, your phone is going to do better. So why are you buying these things well you, it's an appreciation for what it is and also for why the guy that makes it is compelled to make a watch and once you start meeting these guys you talk to the watchmakers you find out a little bit about them that's compelling um and you understand why they do what they do um, yeah i mean i couldn't agree more i mean just looking at the back of that lane um i mean it's intricate mm-hmm. it's beautifully done yeah um and the cool thing is, as the owner, you know what it is yeah. because it's on your wrist and you know what's under there. Yeah. Not everybody else does. So that too makes it special. Yeah. There's, there's, it's there's like a that, hidden secret. Yeah. There's that part of it. Um, as I say, you know, oftentimes when people buy a Rolex, which, you know, Rolexes are, are amazing watches to make almost a million watches a year, consistently make them that good. It's fantastic, and all the watchmakers that I work with recognize that. They're yeah, it really is. Of Rolex. Um, but at the end of the day, some of the people that say, nice watch man, when you're wearing a Rolex, you don't want to talk to them. Whereas if you ever find anybody that even recognizes one of these independent watches, you'll have a pretty fantastic conversation because they've obviously 
gone down the rabbit hole as well and you know understand and appreciate independent watchmaking yeah what it is i'm a big fan of what's become known as stealth wealth mm-hmm. which un kind of understated mm-hmm. things that are kind of like a secret like yeah. kind of like what you're saying it's it's not stealth wealth from a design perspective but it's stealth wealth in in a branding perspective i guess so mm-hmm. not everybody's heard of lane so for somebody to your point to come up to you and say hey man nice watch yeah you know they either a know what they're talking about or at least respect that kind of design yeah because it certainly doesn't look like a rolex submariner right <laughs> yeah no no not at all um and we'll be wrapping up here momentarily. Mm-hmm. What were some, is there anything that sticks out in your mind as, as having been harder than you anticipated running this business or easier? Um, harder. Yeah. At the beginning when we, we started this business in 2010 and we'd both been involved in, you know, successful businesses prior with, you know, good turnovers. Uh, when you start from scratch, which, we sort of thought we we didn't think we were but in reality we were um it just took longer the 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 ramp to get going to to get established in a, in a community does take a while uh on the because it's going back to the fact that it's a relationship business rather than transactional you know we're not selling there's nothing in this shop that anybody needs this is a shop full of wants and so you have to create the desire in the your clients the community um, to get people to come in, you you obviously got to treat them right, um, and that takes time for that goodwill, if you will, to filter through to the to the community. And and you know we we advertise um, a little bit. You have to advertise to get you know new people. You're always trying to look for new clients. Your be- obviously your best client is a referral, um, but new people uh, we need new people. So um, most of our advertising is done online these days through Google and targeted ads uh and that's primarily for jewelry um the watch guys will find us we're we're, you know we're there on instagram facebook uh, website you know um we we even sell stuff on our website you have to have that these days and that that part of the business is great you wake up in the morning and somebody's you know bought a watch or a piece of jewelry for a couple thousand bucks that's pretty cool yeah um it's not the mainstream it's not our main part of our business um but you have to have that. But so that that you know the 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 initial couple of years were really tough, um, getting going, getting getting traction, if you will, in the marketplace. Um, we we've we seem to have got that, and so that part's getting better. Um, but it's still it's a challenge every day. You know, come back from Basel, and we've got invoices to pay for new product. Um, you've got to make it happen, and that it just uh, it's a Every day, it's an intention that you get up. I'm going to work. I'm going to create. We we have to create this. There's no, you know, we, we can't not. We have four children, so um, one's out of college, but we've got three that are still very much on the payroll. So um, we got to make it work. Well, and then there you go. Back to the passion, right? That's yeah. what gets you out of bed in the morning. Yeah, is the yeah. product. But really, with you, I really think it's special because it really is about the people. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like as we've sat and, and, and chatted, it's the watchmakers. It's, yeah. it's the customers. It's the reaction when they make that purchase. It, yeah. it really is about the people, and I think that's just awesome. Yeah, it's, it's really special. It, 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 yeah, well, that's, we, that's 
part of how we can get up every morning and do yeah. this or you know spend hours at night on online researching stuff or you know taking a conversation for an hour in the evening with a with a client who has questions worries ideas about you know the next purchase um it's sort of it's all encompassing today in the digital world you know you, people can reach you um any time of the night day um we do have to switch our phones off um but it's um it's just part and parcel of the business um which has its you know downsides as well because you're kind of connected the whole time right um but the flip side is that like you say we get to deal with some really cool people and it's awesome what, yeah we love it well i feel like that's a good place to stop All um right. is there anything else you wanted to add websites you independent in time yeah i mean independent in time dot com and passionfindjewelry.com those are independent time is more of an inf informational website specifically to do with independent watches got it passion is our main business and that's where again you can see the watches uh watches for sale you can buy watches there and jewelry um and uh instagram is a you know instagram and facebook um a great place to see what we do and instagram with the photographs um, independent in time and, and passion find jewelry the Instagram pages which are fun and obviously on Facebook as well same sure same name and all the contact infos listed yep. there to get in touch yep. make a purchase hopefully mm -hmm. fantastic oh, yeah. I'd love to talk to anybody about awesome anything. Tim I can't thank you enough this has been great thanks Wes thanks this for really... uh, the hospitality yeah no this is fun great well uh, let's catch up soon will do thank, thank you. you bye bye thank you cheers I'd really like to thank Tim one more time for having me into the store. Really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, it's just been really great getting to know him over the last couple of years. Uh, if you're ever in Southern California, by all means, stop by Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach. It truly is a special place, uh, and then the watches are just absolutely amazing. Hope you stay tuned until next week. Uh, some exciting guests are, are up and coming for sure. And the music has been provided by Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful. Thanks so much for listening.